You'll join me in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you're using uh, the Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 981. We will be looking at verses 18 and 19 this morning. The title of our sermon is Give Me More. And our keywords are greed, belly, and materialism. Now you may know the story of King Midas. King Midas was a king and he had great fortune and he ruled over the country of Phrygia in Asia Minor. He had everything a king could wish for. A luxurious life. He lived in a great castle. He shared his life of abundance with his beautiful daughter. Even though King Midas was so rich he could have everything that he wanted, he believed that his greatest happiness was found in gold. And he spent all of his day counting his golden coins over and over again. Occasionally, it is said that he would lay down and he would have his servants cover him in all of his golden objects so it was like he was bathing in them. Money was his absolute obsession. Now one day, Dionysus, the god of wine and revelry, passed through the kingdom of Midas, and one of his companions, a satyr named Selenius, was delayed along the way. Selenius got tired and so decided to take a nap in King Midas's rose garden that surrounded the palace. And while he was sleeping, Selenius was found by King Midas, who recognized Selenius immediately and invited him to stay in his kingdom for a few days. Selenius stayed with Midas for a few days, and afterwards Midas took him back to Dionysus. Now Dionysus was, of course, the god who was known for excitement and celebration and, and lavishness, and was very grateful to Midas, who promised him that he would satisfy anything that he wanted. And so Midas thought for a while and eventually concluded, I wish that everything I touched would turn to gold. Dionysus warned the king to think hard about his wish, but Midas was certain. And so Dionysus granted King Midas's wish. And sure enough, starting the very next day, everything he touched turned to gold. Now, of course, Midas was very excited and was eager to see what he could do. So he began touching. And the first thing he touched was a small table, and immediately the table turned to gold. He jumped with happiness and he touched his chair and his chair turned to gold. He touched the carpet and his door and his bathtub and another table and all of it was gold. He ran around his palace touching everything he could find until he was exhausted and delighted. All that he was able to do. Now you would think at this point he would name his palace Trump Tower. But then King Midas sat at the table. He was having breakfast and he took a rose into his hand. He wanted to smell it, but I'm sure you've already guessed it. When he touched the rose, it became gold. But then immediately, without even thinking, he picked up a grape to eat, but it too turned to gold. And then a slice of bread and a glass of water, gold and gold. And suddenly the king started to understand Dionysus' warning, and he became fearful. Tears filled his eyes, and at that very moment, his beloved daughter entered the room. In all of his grief, King Midas was so thankful to see her, and immediately he reached out to embrace her. 
and his very own daughter turned into a golden statue. Greed never wins, does it? Avarice, an extreme desire for material gain, is an idol. Now, I'm certain that we've all likely met people who are addicted to money and to uh, obtaining and having and spending as much money as they can or, or gathering up as much stuff as they can gather, having massive amounts of all of it, and yet have found that it has never been the remedy to the emptiness that they had in their hearts. So often, we even have probably thought about our own circumstances, if I only had a little bit more. Do you know that 70% of people who win massive lotteries, hundreds of millions of dollars, within a year are bankrupt? 70%. Remember the famous quote from John D. Rockefeller who was asked how much money is enough? Even though he was the richest man in the world, he said, just a little bit more. We all have in our minds that if we were the ones who had it, if we were the ones who won the lottery, we would beat the odds. It wouldn't change us. We would always be who we have always been. But greed isn't a matter of money management. It isn't simply a case of making sure you have wise investments and reasonable purchases. Greed is a condition of the heart. Greed is a matter of idolatry that no amount of financial planning will solve. Andrew Carnegie, one of the richest men in the world in the 19th century, wrote an essay in 1989, excuse me, 1889 called The Gospel of Wealth. And he seemed to understand something about the issue of greed. He argued that simply passing on wealth from those who make it to those who don't, like when wealthy parents give large amounts of money to their children who aren't qualified to maintain and manage it, they are walking in very dangerous territory. The heart is the heart is changed. The motives and actions and, and, and those important things that we need to take note of, they, they are different when a person is handed all of this wealth as opposed to having the opportunity, the gift from God, to work for it. And true to his word, at the end of his life, Andrew Carnegie didn't give away his fortune to his children. He gave away his entire estate. In 1919, over $350 million to charity. Today, that's the equivalent of over $10 billion. Now, we've worked through our series called Idol, and over the last few weeks, we've spent time talking about some very specific idols that we are all prone to have in our lives. We looked at the idol of self. Last week, we looked at the idol of family. And this morning, you guessed it, we are talking about dollar dollar bills, (laughs) y'all. Now, we're not just going to talk about money, though. We're going to talk about materialism, gratification of the flesh. All of this that we seek to have, and not just to have, but to have more of, because we're seeking to fulfill some kind of longing in our heart that is there. And so we're going to look at Philippians 3, 18 and 19 to consider this idea, this issue of the material stuff, food, money, all that our flesh desires. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Let's look at verse 18 of Philippians chapter 3. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, their God is is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly 
things. Now, in the broader context of this passage, the Apostle Paul is calling the church to live as faithful believers of Christ, worthy of the gospel, imitating him as he imitates Christ, living as citizens of heaven and not simply as citizens of this world. He gives them a reminder that their eyes, their hearts, their affections should be set on Christ and not on all of the material things. And in one verse this morning, he begins to expose the people who have fallen into lifestyles consumed by the material world and all of its trappings. So the first thing we see in our text this morning is that materialism exposes any lack of true faith. The first thing Paul identifies in verse 18 is that these people that he's addressing, he calls them enemies of the cross. And notice he says they are many. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he says all of this with tears. Literally, this can be translated, I speak weeping. Well, why is Paul weeping here? Paul never had an issue going after people who were enemies of the cross before. In fact, he had, he had very strong words toward those who were enemies of the cross. He was one of the more aggressive bulldogs when it came to defending the truth. So why tears now? Why in this instance? Well, Paul is writing about people who once professed faith in Christ. He's writing about people who were likely members of the church in Philippi. They were still in the community. They were still members of that community, neighbors to the people of the church. But they are no longer living as Christians. They have abandoned the faith. And now, not only are they not part of the church any longer, Paul says they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They are people who the church loved, the church had ministered to, the church had cared for. They worshipped next to them. They sang with them. They, they wept with them. Paul himself probably had spent time with some of them and ministered to them and counseled them and loved them and shared meals with them. And yet, here they are. They have nothing to do with the church. They have nothing to do with the Lord. They are no longer walking in faithfulness. And not only that, they are living in opposition to the things of God. They have abandoned the faith and are opposed to Christ, and it broke Paul's heart. But what is the thing that exposes all of this for Paul? He tells us in verse 19. He says, Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now the evidence of the fact that their faith is ultimately not not in Christ is that they are far more concerned with the things of the world. Their physical desires. Their shameful desires and deeds, the earthly things that appear more attractive to them than the things of God. This is idolatry. This is what we have been talking about. When Paul, when Paul says their God is their belly, he has several things in mind here. But in general, it's a way that is talking about all of their bodily desires. The sensual and fleshly desires have become their God. There was a way that the, the Greeks often talked about the human soul. And they did that in three parts. And one of those parts was the appetitive part that, that was uh, concerned with, uh, with the, the bed and the table. So food and drink and laziness and sexual gratification. And that's what he's talking about here. The Greek philosophers all had this in mind. And so Paul's using that language. Their God is their bellies, their sensual appetites, and their, their desire for things that fill them up. 
And so they worship the sensory, they worship the fleshly, they worship what feels good with their time and in that moment, and they live for instant gratification. And as a result, they're not satisfied in Christ, they're looking for their satisfaction elsewhere. And it is a never-ending cycle because it never brings the satisfaction they long for. This is idolatry. And it is evidenced in a lack of true faith. Now, just because Paul isn't just talking about their bellies here, it doesn't mean he's not talking about their bellies at all. In my experience, it seems that most Christians are pretty open when talking about things like drunkenness and sexual immorality as sin, but we don't often like to talk about things like gluttony. But before I say anything about that, I want to make everything very clear here. Food is a gift from God, and I am the first to tell you it is one of my very favorite gifts from God that He has given. I prefer my meals gourmet. Cooking is my daily hobby. I've taken cooking classes. I listen to food podcasts, interviews with chefs as I drive around in my car. I'm trying daily to improve my craft. I like to use fresh ingredients, make things from scratch. I love the process, starting from raw ingredients and creating something that is beautiful to eat and taste. But I want to admit to you as well that I'm a man who just about two and a half years ago faced the reality that I was a glutton. Now, I know if you haven't known me that long, it's hard to believe. But I repented of that. And by the grace of God, I've been able to do something about it. And Lord willing, able to maintain a healthy lifestyle. Eating right, smaller portions, exercising, all the things that God has given us to take care of our bodies. I used to be in extremely good shape back in the day, but I'm not 24 years old anymore. And so I need to be mindful of that. But let's be clear here. God hasn't given us height and weight charts to measure ourselves so that we can determine a healthy standard size for our bodies. Likewise, there are people who have physical problems, maybe using medications and other factors where they're not able to maintain some kind of perfect size. They may have excessive weight and they can't help that no matter how well they eat or whatever. But the issue is the issue of the heart. Let's be honest. Most of us are not an exception to the rule. God has given us the common grace of medical research and, and practice and, and giving us the ability to know what is healthy, that we can maintain some physical health so that we can be prepared and able to do the very things that God has called us to do to the best of our abilities. According to a very recent medical survey, more than two in three adults, two out of three adults are considered overweight. More than one in three adults are obese. One in 20 adults are extremely obese. Now, unfortunately, statistics for, ch for children are on the rise as well. Nearly one in six children are obese. Now, those numbers are shocking because one of the things Paul is pointing out here, it reveals a lot about our spiritual health right alongside our physical health. There is undoubtedly Without, there is no doubt, there's a lot of pressure, especially on women to look a certain way, to look skinny and all of that. And even, even those who are healthy and thin don't often think that they are because of that kind of pressure, and it's wrong, and we shouldn't be thinking along those lines. However, a biblical perspective about something like food isn't just about how we look. In fact, it's not about how we look at all. It's about what's in our heart and what we are seeking our joy in. What are we seeking our satisfaction in? 
Because vanity is just as sinful as gluttony. So there's a real issue on both sides of this. Now, probably like you've done, I've often wondered why it seems that the best tasting foods in the world often seem to also be those that are the least healthy. I want to ask the Lord about that, but I think I do know. The Lord didn't design things in this world haphazardly. Many of the things we are most likely to turn into idols are things that God has graciously limited. It's possible to enjoy sweet and savory delights all to the glory of God without being excessive. But if we are excessive, the results will very quickly show. In my case, the results showed in each successive pant size. And the way we eat says something about what we find to be most valuable and serves to prove what we're seeking our hope and enjoyment in most ultimately. Things like gluttony are heart issues because of God's people. Especially, we have the Holy Spirit within us. And the fruit of the presence of the Holy Spirit within us is self-control. And so if we can't exercise self-control, there's a deficiency. Just like we can enjoy a drink without being drunkards, we can delight in the gift of sex in its proper context without being sexually immoral, We can enjoy food without being gluttons. We can earn and save money without being greedy. We can have possessions without being materialistic. The Apostle Paul identifies that in the last days, people will be without self-control and will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The Proverbs point out all, all sorts of things. Gluttony being one of them, revealing that the tendencies of a glutton are are to live in excess. But it's not just with food. You also see excess in other areas of life. There's always this desire of the heart to compensate for what's missing when we do not have faithful, healthy communion with God. And this is what Paul is getting at. In fact, the remedy to resist gluttonous temptation is given in strong hyperbole in the Proverbs to put a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. And true faith is marked by self-control, sometimes marked by radical measures. Now, the more we have conscious communion with God, the more we're able to use His gifts in healthful, healthful and fruitful manners. Food is one of the best ways for community to be grown and to be developed creates opportunities for good fellowship. Jesus and the apostles were regularly sitting down at the table together. They were breaking bread from house to house. They were eating with sinners. One of the most important things the church does is to gather together for a meal, namely the Lord's Supper. And so there are purposes for food beyond our bellies. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. One day we will enjoy gathering together as the church with Christ to enjoy what? A feast. A heavenly feast that awaits us. But the great thing about that feast is it's free from the temptation of sin to overindulge. And I have to believe that that menu will definitely include bacon-wrapped bacon. But as we have said, Paul isn't just talking here about food. He says that they also glory in their shame. He's talking about the excesses of sexual desire. And they not only indulge their sexual desires in immoral ways, they glory in in it. They brag about it. They boast about it. 
They talk about it all the time. It becomes a game. It becomes a, a badge of honor. God has called it shameful, but they have turned it into an idol. The delight in what God has called profane, and we have no lack of examples in our culture of what that looks like. And it's not just food and drink and sex, it's material possessions as well. We talk about this all through our sermon this morning, but it's having one's mind set on earthly things. Always thinking about the next amount of money, always thinking about the next item to buy, always wanting to earn and to gain so that you can have more and more and more. Now listen, it is not wrong to have money and stuff. And in fact, it is a good thing that Christians would use their gifts and skills and talents to make as much money as they can make and to do the things that they can do so that they can be abundantly generous and fruitful with the resources that God has provided. There is nothing wrong. It is not a sin to have a lot of money or even a lot of stuff but there really is something very wrong when a lot of money and a lot of stuff have you. And once money and stuff or food and drink or sexual immorality, once they have your heart, your true affections start to rise to the surface. It shows in your desires. It shows in how uh, you naturally long for certain things, especially when you're called to choose between the things of God and the things that you have and enjoy. Do they consume you? Any of these fleshly desires, do they consume your time and your life? Now, every one of us can name people who have rejected Christ and have instead lived for bodily pleasure and comfort. It's a sad reality. But life for them is all about the food they eat and the clothes they wear and the house they live in and the car they drive and the things that they do to satisfy their pleasures. Where they go and who they go with. All of it serves to displace the cross, it serves to displace the one true God with their belly. And there's a warning here for all of us. Beware that our pleasures, beware that our things, the things that God has given us as good gifts to enjoy and delight in, gifts from the Father in heaven, that they do not impede our passionate pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can very easily turn good things into God's. We can turn the gifts from God into God's themselves, and then we are worshiping an idol, and all of a sudden, our bellies become our God. Are you in danger? It's a very important question for all of us to ask. And the reason it's so important is because of what we see secondly this morning, that materialism leads to judgment. Notice what Paul writes in verse 19. Their end is destruction. Idolatry of any kind is a dangerous road to walk down, but Paul draws special attention to why that is. Idolatry, chasing after idols, worshiping an idol, putting an idol on the throne of your heart instead of Christ, ends in judgment, and it is destruction. Why? Because nothing can take the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can take the place of Christ. There is no hope of life when you come to the end of the road and you've loved food or drink or sex or money or possessions more than you've loved Christ. The end is destruction, and the great and mighty and powerful judgment of God will fall on those who value the desires of the flesh over and above Christ. All who deny the truth about Christ in favor of what they seek to gain from their idol of choice. 
Phil Riken wrote, the Philippian apostates were digging their graves with their own teeth as they chewed upon their earthbound impulses and the cud of personal pleasure. The pursuit of creature comforts displaced the pursuit of Christ and the cross. Something we've already discussed regarding idolatry a, a few weeks ago we talked about is that all of us, all of mankind is created as worshipers. And so the issue, the question is not if we will worship. The question is what we will worship. Everyone in life is looking for meaning, is looking for purpose, is looking for peace, is looking for satisfaction. And we will all put the greatest effort toward finding all of that in what we think will provide that. We will put our greatest efforts toward what we think will provide to us all that we are longing for. And that makes sense. J.I. Packer says it like this. He says, it is impossible to worship nothing. We humans are worshiping creatures, and if we do not worship the God who made us, we shall inevitably worship someone or something else. Of course, the truth is that our supreme fulfillment as moral beings made in God's image is found and expressed in actively worshiping our holy creator. Now that's true, isn't it? It's why the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are all dealing with properly worshiping God. There is no uncertainty in the Bible about God's hatred for idolatry. And the penalty for worshiping anything or anyone other than Christ, the penalty for turning to the idol of materialism, is judgment. And if we are true believers in Christ, there is a reality that we will that in our hearts, we will have idols. We've talked about that. Idols will rise to the surface. But do we hate idolatry to the extent that when we recognize those idols, that we don't try to protect them, we don't try to keep them, we don't try to hold on to them, but our greatest desire is to destroy them. They will be there. But what we will find is all of them are found wanting, right? Because none of them will provide what we hope they will provide. So what do we do about them? Are we, like God, hating our idols and seeking to crush them whenever they rise up? Or are we like the dog who returns again and again to its own vomit and find that once we get there, it cannot provide, it is lifeless? Buying new things, having more money, eating more food, drinking more drink, having another sexual partner, watching more pornography, none of it does, none of it gives what it promises to give. Now, wise Christianity leads us to conclude that only Christ will do. Only Christ can provide. Yes, we will have idols. Yes, we will overvalue certain things or certain people. It is inevitable in our fallen world, as fallen people, it is going to happen. But what do we do with that? That's the real question. How do we deal with it once it is recognized? You see, God is so serious about idolatry because He actually wants what is best for us. And what's best for us is not the things of this world, but Him. God wants what's best for us, so He gives us Himself. He has given us himself that we might have that which is going to bring the greatest amount of pleasure, the greatest amount of joy, to fill the longing. And only God can do that. Now, if I came to you and told you, you know, the greatest gift I can give you is my friendship, you would think I'm an egotistical maniac, right? 
And that might be partly true. However, when the Lord does that, when the Lord gives us himself, when the Lord gives to us himself that we might know pleasure, that we might know joy, that we might know satisfaction, he's doing that out of his love for us because there is nothing or no one greater than God. And so God, unlike you, in doing so, is not a self-serving megalomaniac. God is loving us when he gives us himself. And this is at the heart of Christianity, that our greatest hope, our greatest affections can be placed in Christ because Christ is fulfilling everything that we are longing for and seeking in everything else that cannot provide. It is in Christ alone who lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death and was raised again from the dead three days later. It is in Him alone that we can find what we're looking for to be satisfied by. It is Him alone that fills the brokenness and the emptiness and the longing that exists in every human heart. Is that the Christ that you worship? Is it Him that you look to for satisfaction and hope and joy and meaning in this life? Well, the last thing Paul shows us that we can consider that question this morning is that materialism pulls our hearts and minds away from the Lord. What do you think about when all else is quiet? Now, I realize that doesn't happen very often in our world. But when there are no other sounds to take your attention away, maybe you've, you've made the terrible mistake of driving in your car at some point and forgot to turn on the radio, or you... You're lying in bed at night and everyone else is asleep? Or you're standing in the shower? What does your mind go to immediately? Now again, I'm not saying that all we ever think about is the Lord and His Word. That's not even realistic. It's not something the Lord asks us to do. But what it does mean is that when we are thinking through the issues of life, when we're thinking about our finances, when we're thinking about our stuff and our decisions, Does biblical wisdom enter into that process? Does biblical thinking in terms of things like generosity and giving for kingdom purposes and the like, do these even cross our minds? Or are our minds so set on earthly things that it is an afterthought? Brothers and sisters, do you have the thoughts of God? Are you concerned to meditate on the truth of God's word to complete Uh, to, to contemplate all of His grace, to think of all of His attributes, to be prayerful, to be thankful to Him, to worship Him? Or is your inner disposition taken over by earthly thoughts about earthly things? These people that Paul is writing about, these people have fallen away after idols. There is no thought of God in their minds at all. There's no regard for God in their lives. They, they live for themselves. They live for the things of this world. They have come full circle, once pronouncing to know and to love and to trust Christ, and now they're rejecting Him completely, abandoning every pursuit of the cross and setting their minds back on the things of this world. You and I as Christians, we know people like those Paul writes about. We know people like that. Sometimes you'll meet people who say, Well, I used to be a Christian. Well, you know, that's not actually a thing. You can't used to be a Christian. You used to say you were a Christian, 
but you either are or you aren't. It's not something that you come in and out of. Now, I know it's 2019, and you can basically say whatever you want to say about who you are and what you are, but that's not how it works. You're a Christian by virtue of being regenerated by God through the power of the Holy Spirit, receiving a new heart and being made a new creation in Christ by God's grace, granting us the faith to believe and repent of our sins. And when that happens, when that happens, one of the ways we know that happens is the change of our affections. What we want and how we go about getting what we want changes. All of the desires wrapped up in that changes. Now listen, the Bible is abundantly clear that the more we have, the more resources we are given, the more difficult it is to keep our eyes and our hearts fixed on the Lord and to maintain our faithfulness in Christ. That saying, more money, more problems, it's not a, it's not a joke, it's true. And the Lord addresses that. The more you have, the more you have to manage, and the more difficult it becomes, and the more tempted we are to have our hearts pulled away. We get in our minds that our lives are comfortable and that problems can be fixed by money and stuff. And listen, brethren, as as 21st century Americans, our lives are very, very comfortable. Nobody is here that is mega wealthy that I know about, but in terms of the span of world history, in terms of human history from the very beginning until now, you and I are filthy rich. We have more than even some of the richest people the world ever knew in generations past. More than they ever had. And what do we think about? How do we deal with that? What are our minds set on? So often, our minds are set on more, more, and even more. It's hard to be a faithful Christian who doesn't serve the idol of materialism in America. It is. This isn't me trying to guilt us all into something. It's just a reality that the Lord presents to us that we have to deal with. It is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever thought about what that means for you and your own heart? Just because our idea of what a rich person is may be different from what Jesus meant doesn't mean it's not the reality that you and I are very rich. But you know where we're most rich? Where we're most rich isn't in that we have material possessions and money in our bank accounts. It's in that we have Christ. That's where real wealth can be found. You know, I've been to some of the poorest places in the world. Real, true poverty in terms of physical need. And yet, I've seen among these people that they are indeed extremely rich because they know, they trust, they love the Lord Jesus Christ. They have the most valuable of all resources. They have God's Word and they have the Spirit dwelling within them. And you know what the Lord has given us in all of our material possessions? He has given us the means to bring that word, that most valuable resource to the ends of the earth, to the rich and to the poor, to the haves and to the have-nots, to the weak and to the powerful, to the tall, to the short, to the brown, to the black, to the white. We have the most valuable resource in the world, and it's not a material thing that we can idolize, but a means that points us to the greatest end of communion with Christ. What are we doing with that? 
All of these gifts the Lord has given us, we can take and we can enjoy, we can delight in, but not to the end of using them in and of themselves for themselves or as gods to bring pleasure and fulfillment. It is all to the end of launching us out to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, we have the means today to do something the church has never been able to do before, and that is to bring an end to the Great Commission. We have all the means necessary, technology, transportation, and resources in terms of money to bring the gospel to every place in this world amazingly within a matter of days if we wanted to get there. What are we doing? Are we utilizing our resources in order to make that happen? To whom much is given, much is required. And so let's give them Christ. Let's give them Christ. And that means we set our minds on Christ. We banish all the idols in our lives. That we can give Christ to the rest of the world. That He would be glorified in all the nations. That they would be glad in Him forever. That's what the world really needs. And then we'll all be filthy rich. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder of your word that it is so very easy to be captivated by the things of this world. And one of the reasons is because you, as our Father, gives us really, really good gifts. You give us wonderful things that we can enjoy, and we thank you for all of those things. But we pray, Lord, that the things you give us to enjoy the delights of this life, the things that appeal to us, that they not become our gods, that they not become idols, but that they serve as what they are, means of enjoying what you have given that we might worship you with even greater thankfulness, with hearts of even greater love, with greater appreciation for all that you are and all that you provide. And so, Lord, help us to be thankful for and to enjoy the opportunities you give us to earn, to gain, to make money, to have stuff, to enjoy tasty food, to enjoy drink, to enjoy sexual delight in the way that you have designed, to enjoy all of these desires of the flesh. But help us to do so without turning them to idols, not turning them to gods we worship, but utilizing them in such a way that our eyes are turned to you and that our greatest delight is the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we bring that great delight to the ends of the earth, fulfilling the great commission that all the nations might be glad in Christ. And we pray you would do all of this for your glory in the advance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.